Well, Charles Dickens opens his classic, A Tale of Two Cities, with a series of memorable contrasts. I want to read the opening of that book. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's one of the most famous openings of a book, I think, in literature. Revelation itself has been called a tale of two cities, but it's not the England and France of Dickens' day, but Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Babylon represents this evil world that opposes the things of the one true God, and its character and destiny has been described repeatedly and with great specificity the last two weeks in chapters 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation. Babylon is pictured, as one commentator vividly described, as a tawdry prostitute mounted on a beast sipping holy blood from a golden goblet. The other city in this tale of two cities is the New Jerusalem. Its glory and its goodness is coming. It's going to be described in the remaining chapters of the book of Revelation, specifically in chapters 21 and 22. And there, that city, far from being cast like Babylon as a tawdry prostitute mounted on a beast sipping holy blood from a goblet, she is pictured as a radiant bride, beautiful, pure, adorned for her husband. The contrasts could not be more stark. They could not be more memorable. While it appears the best of times for Babylon and the worst of times for God's people, a great reversal is coming. And that's the purpose of these remaining chapters, is to persuade us that things will not be as they currently are. That great reversal is seen in our passage this morning. Revelation 19 contains the two contrasts. In the first half, you have those who were persecuted and treated as insignificant and martyred, reigning with Christ and celebrating His glorious kingdom as it's established in the earth. Picture it as a feast at a marriage supper. And in the second half of the chapter, you see Christ taking upon Himself a, a, the, the, the role of a captain in a military army, riding upon a white horse to trample and kill all who are opposed to Him. Those who suffer for Christ today will feast with Christ later. Those who feast with Babylon today will suffer at the hands of Christ later. That's the point of Revelation 19. So the main idea is this. Jesus, the bridegroom, is preparing a feast for his persevering bride, while Jesus, the warring king, is preparing a buffet for the birds. You have a choice. Eat or be eaten. 
So we're going to work through the text this morning from the end to the beginning. Three main points this morning. First of all, the warrior is returning to prepare a feast, verses 11 through 21. Secondly, the bridegroom is coming to prepare a feast, verses 1 through 10. Point number three, choose your feast, eat or be eaten. Number one, the warrior is returning to prepare a feast. In verse 11, John sees a white horse. The one riding on it is faithful and true. Now, we don't have to guess who this one is, since this phrase is used one other time in Revelation 3.14, clearly referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used alongside the phrase, Amen, and the beginning of God's creation. Now, the beginning of God's creation is similar to the firstborn of the dead that we read in Revelation 1, verse 5. And in that same passage, Jesus Christ is described as the faithful witness. So this is clearly Jesus Christ on the white horse. In verse 13, he's also called the Word of God. And the many diadems on his head represent that he's the universal, once-for-all, final, conquering king. Verse 16, he has written on his thigh the designation that he will henceforth be known by, King of kings and Lord of lords. And according to verse 12, this name is unique to him alone. So we have Jesus pictured as a mighty warrior. In Christ's first coming, he rode on a donkey. But in his second coming, he will ride on a white horse. He came as a suffering servant. He will come as a conquering king. He came in humility and weakness. He will come in power and glory. He came to suffer the wrath of God for sinners. He will come to pour out the wrath of God on sinners. He was rejected by many as the Messiah. In his second coming, coming he will be recognized universally as Lord. He came to seek and save the lost. In his first coming, he will come to judge and rule as king in his second coming. We see his purpose in verse 11. In his second coming is to judge and make war. This is clear from verse 12 where we read, His eyes are like a flame of fire. That phrase is used over and over and over again in the book of Revelation and primarily in reference to Jesus and his execution of God's judgment. This phrase is used two other times in Revelation in the context of Christ's all-knowing, all-seeing, piercing gaze. You could look those up in Revelation 1.14 or Revelation 2.18. He also has a sword in his mouth. This is the same sword that was mentioned in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 2. His robe is dipped in blood, verse 13, and he is coming with the armies of heaven following him on white horses. This is a picture of a conqueror coming to reclaim what has been taken from him. Babylon thought that it had ruled and reigned and taken the earth over, and that it was henceforth going to be the property of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Not so fast. The coming Christ will come and execute judgment against the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. We read in verse 20, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who was in its presence, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So how will this judgment be executed? First, look at verse 15. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The nations will be struck down. That is, the unbelieving earth dwellers that have not trusted in and followed this conquering Christ. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron, it says, which means he's coming to destroy. In fact, Revelation chapter 2, verse 27 uses this very phrase, and it says, He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces. So he's coming to execute the seventh trumpet. We read about that, remember, in Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. That's what's being executed here by this rider on the white horse, Jesus himself. His wrath will be fully and finally poured out on unbelieving humanity. Each word in verse 15 communicates the severity of this judgment. Hear this again. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It is mounting up words of how vicious and just and extensive and pervasive, complete, and all-consuming this final judgment will be. Not only is he going to strike down the nations and destroy them, but second, the beast and all those marked by him will wage war against Christ. Now this is not no surprise. They've been waging war against Christ throughout the book of Revelation. But here, even as Christ is coming back, they will put up one last fight one last gap of re- gasp of resistance, but their resistance is futile. Jesus and the angelic host will capture the beasts and the false prophet and throw them alive into the lake of fire. Third and finally, after striking down the nations and after disposing of the unholy trinity, he calls all the birds of the air to gather the great supper of God. In verse 17 we read, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that flew directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. This is a very different supper that's being envisioned here. This is a completely different supper than the one we're getting ready to consider. God's going to have two suppers. The first is going to be a supper of judgment. The second is going to be a supper of salvation. And this supper that's being described here is a supper of judgment. You see it in verse 18. To eat the flesh of the kings. Remember those who sang the lament last week at the funeral service of Babylon? Singing in lament of all that they had invested? Well, here they are again, only now to be eaten and consumed. The flesh of captains. Remember them singing their song? The flesh of mighty men. Remember those singing their songs? The flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men both free and slave, both small and great. The nations will lie dead on the battlefield. And now, to use the language of Jesus in Matthew 24 and Luke 17, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. They are coming to feast on the rotting flesh of the nations. And there's enough food 
for the birds to have their fill. Look at verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Brothers and sisters, it is a sober and serious and hideous vision of what will happen to those who do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be food for the birds. Their rotting flesh will be left on the battlefield. Their blood will stain the garments of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Is this the Jesus you know? You know, we, we, we look often of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, would never harm a fly. Oh, for sure. In his incarnation, Jesus was meek and mild. He was willing to put himself and subject himself to suffering, unjust suffering at the hands of sinful and wicked men. But that was for our salvation. Because if he didn't do that, if he didn't humble himself, if he didn't take upon himself our own humanity... If he didn't live a perfect life for us, if he didn't obey God's law where we failed, if he wasn't crucified under the curse of God on the cross for our forgiveness so that the wrath of God could be alleviated and lifted off us, we would be food for the birds. But because he has borne that, that doesn't mean that everyone's in that kingdom. It doesn't mean that just because he died, everyone is right with God. Rather, as this book makes clear, there are two different humanities. There are those who are in league with Christ and following him, and there are those in league with Babylon and following it. And only those who are holding to and following the Lord Jesus Christ will make it to the, the second feast, which we come to now. Second, the bridegroom is coming to prepare a feast. In verse 1, a great multitude is heard twice crying out, Hallelujah, as Derek helpfully reminded us this is praise God, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. Now why are they praising God? Look, first they praise him for the judgment that he has executed against the great prostitute in verses 1 through 3. The judgment is true and just. We've seen that. A few weeks ago we talked about how God's wrath is reasonable. It is perfectly consistent with his justice because of God's holiness and our sinfulness. The smoke of her former life will go up forever and ever because she corrupted God's earth with her immorality and shed the blood of God's servants. And God's people will bless God for judging her. Second, the, the, the people of God praise him for the salvation that he has brought. In verses 7 and 8, they rejoice and exult and give God glory for preparing a feast for them. And this feast is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The angel says to John to write the invitation to the supper down in verse 9. And the angel is so glorious and the invitation is so amazing that John is tempted to worship the angel. But the angel corrects him and says, stop that. I've already told you this before. Quit worshiping me. But John can't help himself. His knees are buckling at the beauty of what's before him. At the prospect of this glorious supper. He literally is capsizing under the glory of it. And he's acknowledging before this angel, this is too much. And the angel has to say, worship God. Don't worship me. I'm just the messenger. I'm just a fellow servant like you. 
But just as John was enamored with Babylon, such that the angel had to come and kind of wake him up and stir him up, so he's so enamored with the beauty of the supper that he's tempted to worship. This is how glorious and powerful this supper is. Now, before we come to some applications, we come to point number three. Choose your feast. That's what this chapter would press on us. That's the main application. That everyone here in our worship center this morning, listening to me or or watching online, you have a choice to make. There is a feast awaiting you. It will be a feast where you will feast together with God's people from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation surrounded by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, or you will be the meal. There's an obvious contrast between the marriage supper of the Lamb to which the bride is invited and the great supper of God to which the birds are invited that they might eat the flesh of his enemies. At the end of history, there will be two great suppers. And it will be one that every single human being who's ever been in this world will meet. All people will attend it. You will either eat or you will be eaten. Either you are a guest who dines or you are the dinner. The phrase, the small and the great, is used twice in this chapter. The phrase is referring to both the big timers and the nobodies. That would be everybody. Everybody's a big timer or everybody's a nobody. Or somewhere along that spectrum. But the phrase, the small and the great, is John's way of saying it's everybody. The first time it refers to unbelievers in verse 5, or sorry, the first time it refers to believers in verse 5, those who serve and fear God, and the second time it refers to unbelievers in verse 18. So the small and the great believers and unbelievers, verse 5 and verse 18, everybody is going to be there. Let's make sure we see that. Look at verse 5. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. So that small and great applied to believers, those who are praising God, those who fear God, those who serve God. But then verse 18, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, both slave and free, both small and great. So that's unbelievers, everybody. It's a fearful thing, but it's a wonderful thing. It's a tale of two cities. It's a tale of two destinies. Small and great believers are marked by their purity, their faithfulness, their devotion to the Lamb. Small and great unbelievers are marked by their idolatry, their immorality, and their devotion to the beast. So I can't help but asking everyone this morning to evaluate right now what supper you're headed to. The purpose of Revelation 19, is that the people of God who are headed to the marriage supper of the Lamb won't throw in the towel and fail to get there. Because the pressure from Babylon is so great and the cost of following Jesus is too high, I'm just going to give up. No, you dare not give up. You dare not give up. Because this is what's ahead of you. 
but it's also for those who are being tempted by Babylon, those who are not following the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are kind of doing the church thing, maybe the Christian thing, but not the Jesus thing, not following the Lord Jesus Christ personally. This, this chapter is written to get you off the buffet and to get you onto the buffet line. And may the Lord help you to do that this morning. Kids, adults, are you set for the buffet to be eaten? Or are you headed to eat? I mean, think about it in our own, our own kind of crazy illustration. But imagine, kids, if your mom or dad or your grandparents were driving you and you were going to say, we're going to go out to eat. Get, get excited. Where do you want to go eat? And they tell you, you tell, tell them your favorite restaurant, and they're going to take you there. And as they drive up, they say, I'm sorry, uh, I didn't make that clear. You're going to have to be the one who's cooked. You're the one who's going to get eaten at the restaurant. You, you would be totally afraid. But get me out of here. You're crazy. But that's what's being pictured here. You're headed to the restaurant to be what's served, not to be served. But you can be the one to be served. And I'm going to give us four points in conclusion of applications for how we get out from being eaten and into eating. First of all, let's show reverence to Jesus Christ. Let's show reverence to Jesus Christ. Have you turned from your sin and trusted in this king have you come to the point where you've acknowledged and confessed and realized your rebellion against the holy God, rebellion that the Bible says warrants and deserves the wrath of God? Have you seen and believed that Jesus has taken the punishment that is due you upon himself? He's died on the cross for the sins of all those who will trust in him, and he has risen from the grave in absolute and total victory over sin so that you and me, when we trust in him, will experience his salvation and will be saved from God's final and eternal wrath. Have you turned in reverence to trust in him? For one day, he will return. He will be on that white horse and he will usher in a full and final salvation for all who have trusted in him and he will usher in full and final wrath for all who have turned from him. Which will you receive on that day? I urge you, if you've not come to the point where you have called out for Jesus Christ to save you as King of kings and Lord of lords, do it now in this very moment. Stop listening to me and call out to the Lord. And then when you do, for all who have, those in this room, the vast majority of us who are following the Lord, seeking to hold fast to Him, let's revere Him. We are His servants, small and great. There is no room for casual devotion to Him. This King deserves our wholehearted service. No room for casualness. No room for indifference. No room for lukewarmness. Only room for reverent humble, passionate devotion. Secondly, let's rejoice in Jesus Christ. Now, I remember my wedding day. Katie and I just celebrated our 18th anniversary earlier this month, May 3rd, 2003. Many of you were there. Many of you ate our chicken so that I could not get it at the... Uh, at the sorry, I'm a little bitter about that. I need to deal with that before the Lord. And... Uh, 
I woke up that morning, May 3rd, 2003, and I remember thinking, I'm going to get married today. That's a crazy thing to think about. And I'd gathered together with so many of you and other friends and family, and there was laughter, and there was rejoicing, and there was expectation, and there was celebration, and there was a very, very long wedding ceremony. Everyone has had a seat. And I stood there at the front, and the doors in the back swung open, and there I saw my Katie, my bride. Everybody stood in her honor, and she was walked down the aisle with a smile on her face. I think. Couldn't quite see. The veil was there, but I'm sure she did. And she took my hand, and we turned to one another, and we united our lives with each other. And then we walked out, hand in hand, husband and wife, where we go to a celebration with all the people that we love the most and who loved us most in this world. And how kind of Jesus to pick this as the illustration and the image he wants us to have for when he comes back for us. He wants you to think of a really happy wedding. The worship of God is cause for joy and delight and feasting and celebrating. So let's rejoice in our future. Let's realize that this is what awaits us. If you get a cancer diagnosis tomorrow, believer, terminally, your future is incredibly bright. Your best days are ahead. And so are mine. And so are all of us. So let's rejoice in our King. Let's enjoy the fact that this is our destiny. Let's enjoy this more than anything in this world because we have so many reasons to rejoice in him. Thirdly, let's get ready for Jesus. Let's get ready for Jesus. You notice verse 7? Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, wouldn't that have been unfortunate if back on my wedding day in 2003, the doors in the back swung open and nobody was there? Or if someone ran down the aisle, not my wife, and says, she's not ready yet, give her more time. Or perhaps she had been there and she decided to not show up. Or if she was there and she was in jeans and a t-shirt. So brothers and sisters, bride of Jesus Christ, we must make ourselves ready. But how do we do it? How do we get ready? Well, the answer is in all the ways we've seen in the book of Revelation. We get ready by remaining faithful to Jesus in the midst of a fallen world. We get ready by proclaiming Jesus even when it costs us persecution. We get ready by enduring hardship and trusting God in the midst of our suffering. We get ready by obeying the commands of God and carrying out his mission while we're here. It's not easy. It won't be easy. But notice that this life of faith is not something that we generate out of our own strength and in our own willpower. Notice how verse 7 ends. His bride has made herself ready. And then it says in verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. There's the beautiful biblical tension. All that we need, our God will supply. All that we feel like we lack, He will give. The bride makes herself ready by what our God grants. This is all throughout the New Testament. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By the grace of God, Paul said, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I labored harder than anybody, but it was not me. It was the grace of God that was with me. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. We proclaim him, admonishing, exhorting everyone with all wisdom so that we may present every man perfect in Christ. This I do with all his energy, which so mightily works within me. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, we serve God by the strength that God supplies so that in everything God will get the glory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who is at work in you. Hebrews 13, we strive to live lives pleasing to him as God works in us to equip us with everything good for doing his will. Our God is with us, brothers and sisters. Right in the middle of this exhortation for the bride to make herself ready, the Bible says it was granted her. So is this something that the bride did herself or is this something that God gave the bride? Yes! <laughs> yes, the bride made herself ready. Yes, the bride walked in righteousness. Yes, the bride confessed her sins. Yes, the bride lived in purity. Yes, the, the bride persevered and trusted and hoped in God. Yes, the bride did all these things. But the bride was able to do these things only by God's grace. Christian, you and I, who have trusted in Christ, are betrothed to him, united to him, sealed for him in relationship to him. And at the same time, we are waiting. And there is coming a day when our groom, our king, our savior from heaven will come to us and bring us to his place where there will be a great wedding feast for all ages. And when he comes, we want to be ready. When he comes, we must be ready. And by his grace, when he comes, we will be ready. So are you ready? If not, look to him. He'll make you ready. Are you ready for his return? Are you walking in faith? He'll make you ready. He'll strengthen your faith. If you're holding on to sin, if you're struggling, he'll help you. Give it to him. Are you holding back your trust? Ask him to strengthen you and then venture on him. Are you proclaiming the gospel faithfully and fervently to the people around you? If not, ask him. Am I ready for Jesus to come back right now? If not, ask him. What in my life needs to change so that I will make myself ready? Ask yourself that question and then ask God to help you. And as you answer that question, know that Christ stands ready, ready, ready to grant you all the grace you need to give you everything you need to make yourself ready. Fourth and final application. Let's reverence Jesus Christ. Let's rejoice in Jesus Christ. Let's get ready and let's look forward to reigning with Jesus. Revelation 19 has given us a picture of his coming on a white war horse. Verse 14 says the following. Following him are the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Who's that? That's the same description that we have of the church in verse 8 that we just talked about. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So there's some debate over whether these armies of heaven are just a reference to angels or if this includes a reference to saints, maybe both. I'm convinced it's both. I'm convinced the saints who have gone on before us will be coming back with Christ to conquer with him. When Jesus returns for his people, we will reign with him. 
So in view of Revelation 19, brothers and sisters, let's revere him, let's rejoice in him, let's be ready for his coming, knowing one day soon we will reign with him forever. So the application this morning is simple. To believers, make yourself ready. Remain faithful to your bridegroom. To unbelievers, kiss the sun while the invitation stands, lest you perish. The invitation has been extended. If you wish to attend the marriage feast of the Lamb, you must RSVP. And you RSVP by trusting, adoring, and confidently placing your hope in Jesus alone to save your soul, cleanse you of your sins, and clothe you in righteousness. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for this vision. It's sobering and amazing. It's sobering in that the reality of judgment is real. The reality of your coming to conquer is real. The, the image here, as grotesque and difficult as it is for many of us to read and consider, is but a foretaste of what the reality really is. And yet, the supper of God that is the marriage supper is so much more glorious. And so, Lord, may you use these words, this truth this morning from Revelation 19 to, to save those among us who are, who, are, who, are, who are headed to be carrying for the birds. May they move in faith and trust and hope to Jesus Christ. May those of us who are right now clinging to Christ, may we be able to envision and taste in some small way a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, both in this corporate gathering, in our time in your word, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we look forward, may that be enough to wean us off of all of Babylon's temptations to wean our affections away, not from this physical world that you have made, which is full of glory and beauty. We're not Gnostics. We live lives physically in this world, loving our families, serving our, in our jobs, caring for our church, enjoying so much of this world that you have made, but yet realizing that there is a satanic system operating in the background. Lord, may we not be seduced. May we not be lured away. May in everything we remain faithful to you following the Lamb wherever he goes. Grant us, God, grant us such grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.